Hi, Geekscapists. Welcome to our brand new Geekscape podcast. I'm Jonathan London, your host. And if this is your first Geekscape, strap yourselves in for some pop culture talk, movies, video games, comic books, all that. And yes, I do say that I'm your host, but what you're about to hear is not a conversation that I was a part of. I was invited to be a part of it. I could not make it work, but it is uh, hosted by my good friend, uh, Christian Blatt. He hosts the Geekscape Book Club, the Marvel Movie Talk podcast, and those are all Geekscape podcasts. And I think Christian's an incredible interviewer and a fantastic host. And maybe if you're listening to these Geekscape podcasts as I put them out, you heard Christian as part of our panel live at Los Angeles Comic Con. That's like the podcast that's just the one right before this one in the feed. Man, the content is coming fast and furiously <laughs> on this podcast feed. I am trying to keep things to a release a week uh, to not flood your podcast feed or inundate you with awesome episodes. But um, they're just the opportunities to have great conversations and share them with you is just they're just bountiful. Even at the end of the year, as things are supposedly slowing down, but we we really can't. There's too much awesome stuff going on here at Geekscape. That being said, um, this conversation's great. Uh, Jeremy, I believe I've met him before because he was one of the producers on Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. Our good friend Chris Rompolos, who was in the, you guys know what I'm talking about, the Raiders remake that the kids did in the 80s, shot for shot. There was a documentary about it, and I was invited to one of the screenings of it uh, here in L.A., and I think I met Jeremy there through Chris and uh, Eric Zala, who was also part of the Raiders remake. And um, so when Jeremy's name came up and I started saying, like, oh, Jeremy, I, I know that name somewhere. Ah, yes, because he also was responsible for an awesome documentary in Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. Well, now you get a chance to watch A Disturbance of the Force, all about the notorious... Star Wars Holiday Special from 1978. This is one of those things that if you went to a comic convention in the late 80s, early 90s, you were looking for this thing because you heard it was so bad it's good. Also, you heard that it was how they introduced Boba Fett in Star Wars in the animated sequence. But man, is this thing famous for being bad. And it just has to be seen to be believed. Luckily, there's a documentary about it now and it's streaming now. So go out and watch that. And here is the episode... Christian Blatt sitting down with producer and co-director Jeremy Kuhn. to this Geekscape special. I'm Christian Blatt, and for anybody asking, hey, who's this guy? I am a host here at Geekscape. I do Marvel Movie Talk and the Geekscape Book Club, and uh, you possibly might know me from my own show, The Black Cast. In any case, I'm very excited about today's topic and today's guest. We're speaking with Jeremy Kuhn, who, Jeremy, you are responsible for a great film that I watched yesterday. Uh, a disturbance in the force. I want to make sure I get the title of the film right. Uh, that's that's the full that's title. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So a, a disturbance in the force. 
And it's about the really fascinating, one of the most fascinating moments in science fiction history. The most unusual entry in, in Star Wars history, the Star Wars holiday special. So first of all, Jeremy, thanks again for taking the time to chat with us. When did you first become aware of the holiday special, just in general, long before the movie even started germinating in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I'd heard like rumors of it, I think. I mean, I've been a Star Wars fan since I was back in, I was born. But the uh, just one of those things I thought it was an urban myth. And then a friend gave me a bootleg DVD in like 2002. Uh, I checked it out and made it like 15, 20 minutes into it. And that's all I could handle at the time. And I, I wasn't, I was not convinced that it was a real thing. It felt like it was yeah. a prank. Someone had like taken parts of other things and tried to make it look like it was a TV special. And then, yeah, I'd say since like the, with the internet, with it being available in full the last, you know, 15, 20 years, it's just increasingly become more and more of a piece of pop culture. Yeah. Now uh, I also uh, was, of course I, so I, I was one when the original star Wars came out. So obviously I'm in the, the sweet spot for all of it. I I remember going to the re-release of a new hope, I, uh, you know, so I remember being three basically and seeing it at the drive-in and uh, you know, had, had birthday parties for uh, at, at like return of the Jedi, stuff like that. But I heard of the holiday special. I think it's like a trivia question on the back of a trading card. And that's the only mention I'd ever seen or heard. And, you know, when you're a kid, when you're that age, you ask your parents, well, they hadn't watched it. They didn't know anything about it. So I'm like, okay, maybe what is this? And yeah, it's like you're talking about, you, you hear about it. And in the film, and we'll talk about some of the great people that you get in the film, uh, Weird Al actually talks about getting your hands on the the movie was like this. We're not supposed to see this, you know. It was like such a big deal, and he even parodies that in his uh, white and nerdy video. And I went to a comic book convention in uh, I remember it was 1993 in New York City, and uh, I I I saw it a VHS of it. I'm like, they they have the Star Wars holiday special? No. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. I got that in the Roger Corman Hulk movie. So it doesn't even matter what else I spent nice. my money on that day. <laughs> so two, two great works of, of, of art, really. And I just I went home and I, I could not believe it. And, uh, and it, it's like I've spent so much time spreading the, the word about it because it is, again, you'd be surprised. I'm sure in making the film, Jeremy, you probably ran into people who love Star Wars, no Star Wars, but still we're like, what are you talking about the holiday special, right? Yeah, there's definitely kind of a generate, like people's attachment to it. Like if you were like, you know, three to 10 when it came out, you have a different attachment to it than people who were born after it. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm only like a year or two younger, but like, like my first experience in the theater, I remember is seeing Return of the Jedi in a packed house opening weekend. I was like three and a half or four, somewhere around there. I don't remember anything about the movie, but I remember the feeling that I had. And I feel that's what most yeah. people have. Like when they watch this as a kid, they're like, they know this feeling of like, oh, this is the only chance I could, could see Han Solo or, you know, all these characters outside the film itself. Yeah. And you've got people like Kevin Smith talking about remembering watching it. And, you know, he had the reaction that I think most people would expect. But you do talk to some people who were like, you know, I was a kid when I saw it and all I cared was that Star Wars was on TV. And they were pretty much excited 
you know, and and I think there are people who have an affinity for it, uh, you know, warts and all, as it were. And in yeah. in the film, you talk about how you know our visual audience sees behind me uh, Boba Fett from the animated sequence in it. It, it, it's it's hard for people to discount that sequence because it has all the real actors doing all the real voices. It's a really unique animation style. And I know that uh, Lucasfilm actually put that animated feature as like a bonus on the Blu-ray uh, when the, the full trilogy, well, at that point, the full trilogy, the two trilogies came out. And I believe it's on Disney Plus now. But I think that's a good place to start because I think that's the part the where the the quality is less called into question than maybe some of the other decisions uh talk a little bit about as as you mentioned in the film the animated sequence in the holiday special yeah i mean that's the thing everyone goes to is like the best thing from it uh it's self-contained it's all like it's just it's more interesting and feels more star wars like than anything else that's in the holiday special and having been the first appearance of boba fett is obviously a big deal uh yeah i mean it's kind of fun we we would have liked to give him that story more, but there's a lot more to it. Where like, you know, Nelvana met with like Lucas. Uh, Lucas took him out to, to lunch at Taco Bell, and that that's where they decided they were like they talked about the story, and that's where he hired him. Which I just like the idea of George being a Taco Bell fan. I find very amusing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. The the other thing that's uh, interesting fact in this we we don't have in the film, but uh, it's the first time James Earl Jones was credited as the voice of Darth Vader, because he didn't want to be credited on Star Wars, because I think he thought it was like, I think he thought, like, I'm an actor, I don't want to be in this sci-fi movie, yeah. I'll just do the voice, and then subsequent releases, he was, a, he was you know, credited, but I find it funny that this was the first time he was credited after the original movie. <laughs> That 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 is actually uh, very funny. Yeah, it's uh, it, it it is a it is a very interesting sort of moment. It's like it's like the the one section of it that's considered to be, you know, canon. But in your film, you've got John Favreau talking about you know his affinity for the holiday special and the fact that the weapon that the Mandalorian uses is uh, again behind me for a visual audience. It's that basically that giant tuning fork. I don't even know what to call it. Yeah. Uh, so talk about the importance that it had for, you know, somebody like John Favreau who really, you know, he and Dave Filoni basically shaping an entire era of star Wars on Disney plus at this point. Yeah. I mean, Star Wars has been a lot around, you know, it's been 40, I mean, almost 50 years at this point. So you have people like Favreau and Filoni that were the perfect age when this aired, and now they're making Star Wars content. So of course they'd want to slip these Easter eggs in. And you know, I mean, John talks to George in that clip that we show where he's just like, "Oh, that's you know, canon, right? The gun." And George is like, "No, not really." You know, it's like really <laughs> uncomfortable. But I mean, there's t- like Andor has a has a uh, a reference where they have the uh, the stuffed animal that has the head ripped off at the the Banta, and like that's a a mild reference. I think it's in episode two of Andor, but all these little Easter eggs are just fun to find because they're make they're basically fans like the rest of us. They just happen to be making Star Wars stuff now, and I think that's what makes it so fun. Is it's kind of I don't know, I think Lucasfilm in some ways would probably like to have it go away, but at the same time that just makes encourages us more, and as fans to want to embrace it. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, there's uh, someone you speak to in the film who I guess he got the quote out of George Lucas that he'd like to take a hammer to every VHS of it and smash it. And sort of that idea like, oh, George hates this that much. Now I really want to see it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And what's funny about that quote's actually 
George doesn't like the bootlegs. Because he, I mean, I've come around on this. I have a lot more empathy for George over the process of making this movie where I kind of understand where he came from. But like, uh, I mean, he's not proud of the special and I think he'd prefer that it didn't exist. But like, if he wanted to destroy it and shut it down, he could. I mean, it's there's multiple versions on YouTube. Uh, you know, I mean, at some point they had to screen this the Library of Congress back in the 80s for some reason. I think it has something to do with the copyright. So they've made efforts to maintain this. And in that, that one clip we show from the Boba Fett documentary, they clearly have like an ex- an excellent version of the holiday special in the vault that's like pristine. Yeah, well, in in terms of talking about clips, that was one of the things I was interested in because this is something that, you know, it's not really out there. How do you go about making a documentary which does feature clips, you know, because when I first heard about it, I was wondering, I'm like, oh, they're just going to talk about it. Uh, but you actually get to show clips from it. So how how does that process happen where you would all discouraged at the idea of I want to make this documentary, but uh, I'm not going to be able to show anything? No, no, we knew we knew we could show stuff. There's fair use for doing documentaries where as long as you're commenting on and we're using we're actually not using that much footage. Like yeah. like we used as much footage of the of the special as we like we wanted, which isn't a ton, but it's like everything we wanted to show to highlight. So I mean it's uh you know, we have like a fair use lawyer review everything. He only had two comments on on the edit that we submitted. So we made the film we wanted, submitted it, and then made two That's like great. really minor changes. But the film's protected and it's past, you know, all of our these are internal legal review. So we were pretty buttoned up on it, but yeah, there's plenty of basically we had to tell the film we wanted to tell and like legal reasons didn't interfere with any of that. No, that that's actually great to hear because uh, you know, I think uh, you know, you run into that a lot more with uh, music based documentaries. You know, there are documentaries that just don't come out because it's like, well, you can't clear the music. So what's the point in telling the story? Music is a lot. Music is a lot harder to claim fair use on, but yeah, I mean, this is kind of like the whole thing's talking about aspects of it. It's all commentary, and you know, the fact that you know Lucasfilm actually doesn't want to kind of increases our our protection on it. It's like journal, yeah. it's like journalism, but it's just it's like fandom journalism. No, I can I can see. So, uh, so you talked about the first time you see it, you got about fifteen minutes in. At, at what point do you decide, like, all right, let me let me go back in? And how much time between watching the full special and starting the process of making a documentary about it? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll readily admit. I mean, I don't. You might disagree, but like watching the special beginning to end, like you're watching a movie is really hard. I've had to do it like six or seven times over this process. And like, I, it's fun. I, in like snippets. I, I, yeah. I feel for you and everyone in your life who has to interact with you after that process. No, I, I would agree. Yeah. Watching it straight through is very difficult. <laughs> yeah. With like no commentary and no crowd. It's just, yeah. it's, it's pretty, pretty painful. But I mean, my thing is the, the, the context, I mean, the, most documentaries that I've done, it starts with like questions. I was kind of like, why does this exist? And, like what happened? There had to be reasons why it happened. And as we started digging into it, I'm starting looking, you know, we looked at the context of variety TV in the seventies. You're kind of like, Oh, this makes perfect sense why they did this given what was going on at the time. Uh, so it's just digging like that, but we started on this. It's been over four years ago. We started on this and it's just been like self-funded bit by bit. And you know, we're finally happy to have it done. And like we premiered at South by Southwest, which was a huge stamp of approval. And that's, you know, just, it's made everything possible, but it's been, it's going to be great to just finally share it with like a wide audience. 
Yeah, and uh, while we're recording this, uh, it's December 1st. Uh, when most people are going to hear it, I know they w- it will be available. So it's available, what's the date on that? The 5th, right? Tuesday is... December the- 5th. It'll be pretty much every, every, every platform you could rent or buy digitally, and it's also on Blu-ray and DVD. So like normal retailers like Amazon, Best Buy, any place you can buy movies, it should be available. And I know there have been a, a number of screenings uh, of the film. And uh, what do you think gets some of the best or most surprising reactions when people get to see it, uh, you know, in a theater? My favorite is the uh, the, the VR itchy, you know, Wookiee erotica scene. Sure. Because that's my favorite thing from the special because it's just so wrong and so awkward. And you're like, who thought this was a good idea? And it's awesome to watch with the crowd because there's this mo- there's about 20 seconds where people are like, what am I watching? And is it okay to laugh or should I be uncomfortable? Because they don't know what's going on. And then you kind of get that Taron Killam comes in with a joke and it's just, it's just like a pressure valve that gets released and like the audience goes crazy. Like that's the <laughs> best. That's my favorite response to the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Terry Killam says something along the lines of, you know, n- no one wants to think about their grandfather enjoying porn in the middle of the living room, you know, yeah, and uh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. I know. And, and he just keeps rewinding it to the, to the same spot. And uh, Diane Carroll uh, again and again. Uh, yeah. It's uh, it's interesting that the thing that I learned from the film is sort of the ramp up to it. I had never seen the Donnie Marie clips that you have. And then there was a, it was also, a, it was a Bob Hope special. Maybe there were a few, they talk a little bit about yeah, Richard Pryor sort of this. Yeah. Oh yeah. The Richard. Yeah. I hadn't seen that either. So talk a little bit about, you know, set the stage in that way that like the idea was this movie came out, it was a huge success in the summer of 1977, but of course the, the studio and maybe even to some extent, George, the thought was, are are people going to remember Star Wars in three years? So to kind of talk about some of the equally surprising and in, in some ways worse than the holiday special, some of the other stuff that they did appearance wise, where they, they allowed people to use the costumes and the characters. Yeah. I mean, the initial idea of it is that typically like movies did well in the summer for kids, the kids went back to school and come and come Labor Day, the box office would drop off significantly. So when they started doing all these, so they're on like Donnie Marie, the Richard Pryor show, uh, just tons of like appearances everywhere. That was all in September under the goal of basically keeping the box office up and then also trying to draw in like parents and older people because there's a different demographic that watched variety shows. Uh, so that that was the marketing. That was Charlie Lippincott who was running the marketing. That was the main goal of all that. And it actually worked. I mean, they're on Donnie Marie and that's actually so bad it's enjoyable to me like it's just it's a nice 10 minute it's just it's it's amazing <laughs> yeah and you've got but, donny osmond you know a, a current interview you know a new interview where yeah. he's looking back on it and uh, i think that uh it, you know he's got the perfect perspective on it it's like oh it's so fun that i got to do that but uh i can't believe they let us do that you know yeah he was like a great perspective on he was a great interview and like he gave us that master copy from his archive which is like the, that's the nicest version of that you'll ever find like the stuff on the internet's like looks like it's like you know three or four level dubs of something that aired off standard tv <laughs> so it was nice to see it in pristine pristine quality but yeah i mean back then it was just uh in the 70s if you had any notoriety you got a tv special so like it didn't matter if you couldn't sing or dance. So just like if you if you had notoriety, like they wanted you on TV, and it was cheap and it was cheap programming. It's like none of this was ever supposed to like like there was no reruns. It was just to fill airtime. 
Right. And you've got clips from the uh, the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, the Paul Lynn special, you know, so there's a yeah. lot of that stuff. And, uh, you know, I think that the idea that you would translate that to Star Wars, at some point there's some disconnect. Uh, talk about how maybe the earliest idea of having a special was something that, uh, you know, George came up with, you know, it was sort of a one hour story. Like, well, what if Chewbacca goes home and sort of how it evolves into what the Star Wars holiday special became from sort of that germ of like, well, let's tell a Star Wars story in an hour. Yeah. So Charlie going through Charlie Lippincott's Facebook has like tons of information. So we found out that like the, the seed for the holiday special was actually two years before Star Wars came out. Uh, when Lucas was in a brainstorm meeting with Alan Dean Foster and Charlie Lippincott and that, you know, he basically wanted to do us. He really wanted to tell the Wookiee story of a Wookiee family. I don't know. Like, we don't know why, but that was something they really wanted to do. And so that, that was the seed that got planted. And Alan Dean Foster at the time is kind of like, I don't think it's a very good idea. <laughs> it's like, I don't know how they're going to, I don't know how they're going to talk to each other. And it's, it's very strange. So you just kind of put that in the back burner, but yeah, I mean, when Disney, I mean, not Disney, when, uh, 20th Century Fox is like, hey, we got to do something to kind of keep this in the zeitgeist. You know, let's do it. And the holiday special kind of came up. There was a five-page treatment written, which uh, there's there's some arguing over who wrote it. Uh, according to the Star Wars archive book, it was uh, Pat Proft and Lenny Rips, who we, we interviewed with Lenny Rips in the documentary. And he adamantly denies he had nothing to do with that. Like he was given that later on. Uh, so it sounds very Lucas-like in the in the five-page treatment. And it's very different from what the special is, but it still revolves around a Wookiee family. But the, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, uh, yeah, it's just very bizarre. Then somehow went from that. So, I mean, George has his meeting with the writers and it's kind of like, all right, peace out. I'm going to go work on empire and everything else. I'm going and just cut these people loose. And they had to do their best with what they were given. Yeah, they, uh, you know, and there's uh, the the most recognizable of them is Bruce Valanche, who I think for the most part people know from Hollywood Squares. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, his yeah. you, you see his name on a lot of stuff from that era. But so they're talking about like they spend this one day with George where he's, you know, really invested and really involved. But then that's like the only day they get with George, you know, because obviously uh, Empire Strikes Back is a, is a much bigger fr- fish that needs to be fried. Uh, so at some point it just turns into like, let's bring in a bunch of variety show people. And I I thought that it was interesting because you had this old guard variety show uh, mentality that, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to say for sure, but there was a chance that Robin Williams could have been involved in this special, right? Yeah, that's what I've heard. And that uh, David Acumba, the original director brought him to uh, Ken Mitzi Welch who were producing it. And they're like, no, we need name talent. Like this is, He's, he's not big enough. And then Mark and Mindy hit like a month later, I think. <laughs> so it was like, he, I mean, he was like, he had famous, he'd done the comedy store, but like Mark and Mindy, yeah. he blew up like shortly thereafter. Right, Although he did get yeah. a chance to be, uh, he got a big chance to be in a TV special for E.T. like three years later, which is also terrible to watch. It's Robin Williams with E.T. on, uh, I think it's an ABC special, but um, you should check it I- out. <laughs> I'm hearing about that for the first time. And believe me, yeah. I will be checking that out. I, I had no idea. Yeah. It's on uh, YouTube. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. And that's kind of the thing, you know, I mean, everything is. So when you found out about it, you could just, uh, you just what went over to YouTube and, and checked it out. I mean, it was, it was that era. Yeah, right? I, I've, and, I've spent many, an embarrassing amount of time on YouTube, just trying to find stuff. And it's, it's a rabbit hole to go down. 
Oh, yeah. Because no, research, absolutely. so it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not uh, too embarrassing for council's work. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's a, it immediately becomes a, a write-off, and yeah, the the sort of what you were talking about about the the Donnie and Marie clips. I mean, that's the way most people saw the holiday special is VHSs that have been dubbed and redubbed. And mine, I, I eventually uh, converted mine to DVD, which you know it's a bootleg tape i feel like you know what kind of yeah. trouble you're going to get into for making a copy of it uh because i was worried about the quality of it this is in the pre-youtube era i was like I, I have to make sure i can still watch it but it was also more i'm like i don't want to spend another 20 bucks on this thing and yeah. the idea uh that uh you know somebody maybe it's paul Shear, somebody in the in your movie talks about how like in that era, even we're talking like in into the nineties, like if you met somebody that knew about it, you're like, okay, this is somebody who's really in the know. It was almost like, it was like cred, like, Oh, it was a Christmas special. Right. And if the person said to you, what Christmas special, you're like, forget it. I can't even talk star Wars with them. Right. Yeah. Paul talks about that. It's kind of like a, you know, badge of honor. You just get to gauge someone's fandom based on their knowledge of it. It's uh, I mean, I'm a big star Wars fan. But there's plenty of fans, you know, way more than I do. Like yeah. you start getting to like the, the nitty gritty stuff. I, I get lost sometimes, <laughs> especially when it comes to the books. I'm not as well read as some other fans. <laughs> well, yeah, just there, there got to be so many books. I I'm, I'm the same way. Like there, there's a stretch where like, you know, books started, these Timothy Zahn novels came out in 1991 and I read those. And then like another trilogy came out a couple of years later. And then there was like a book every month and I'm like, all right, I, I, I can't keep yeah. up, you know? Uh, yeah, too and just, much knowledge uh, sorry, and reading. I can't have any of that. <laughs> a comment from my friend Eric in the chat: Bruce Valanche's script for the Last Jedi would have been epic. And uh, yeah. we have another comment. I uh, love the topic. Uh, this is sort of a, a, a beloved thing because it, it is it is it is so weird. Um, this is something that you didn't talk about in the movie that I'm wondering. There's the the version that I saw that I have. The version that most people see, I think, is from. Uh, WCBS Channel 2 in New York. And that's important when we talk about uh, someone who's featured during the commercial breaks, who I, I was so glad was included. Um, but there is another version. I think uh, it's from Baltimore TV. Do you know anything about how these recordings exist? How they're, you know, how the, the different ones circulated at all? Is that something that you uncovered as you were putting the movie together? A little bit. It's all kind of hazy, so we didn't want to get yeah. into it too much because it's not. <clears throat> I, I know there's multiple feeds. My favorite thing we found out just probably the last month or two is the special aired six times in Australia between like '78 and like '83 or '84. Wow. And, and my guess is there was just someone at the radio. My guess is it was a very loose kind of like we need to air something. Just grab this tape. Let's air it, and we're not going to ask permission, and no one's going to care. My guess is that's what happened. But yeah. I can yeah. So, I mean, but it's aired in like, it's aired internationally around. So even though it only aired once in America, uh, yeah, the Australia got their fix of the holiday special for a while. <laughs> they, they sure did. You know, well, you know, at least internationally, you don't have to do anything with uh, all, all the, all the Wookiee stuff. Uh, and yeah. I, I find you, you were talking about the pain of watching it straight through watching it with the commercials in it made it a little bit easier because it was like, you know, it's stuff for like, there's, I haven't watched it in years, but I remember there's like, Oh, it's a toy called uh Tobor, which is robot backwards. I'm like, yeah, we got it. We yeah. figured it out. But like the egg McMuffin was new. So it's like, you know, and there's like, look for the union label. There's all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of cool to, 
Yeah, right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> and it, it's kind of cool to get to see that. But uh, there is something that, uh, you know, now that, uh, for, again, for our visual audience who see the, the picture, uh, they know that uh, you did feature the there's the the news tease for the evening news for after this uh where his name's and roland he's, he's just Smith, below right? you he's just below you yeah on our yeah. poster <laughs> right he's just below me on the poster and i switched him to right behind me yeah. uh but uh and he, so he says fighting the frizzies at 11 and he, i'm so glad you included uh the the first ever uh, south park christmas episode they're having that a guy who looks like Roland Smith teasing it. And then there's a boxing match with a giant frizzy, but that aired, I think 1999, the South park special. And that was still at the point. I'm like, wait, somebody knows about this. So like, you know, Trey Parker, yeah. Matt stone, obviously I know a lot more about them than I did, you know, the first year of South park. And it makes complete sense that they would be guys who would of course spend $20 in a VHS yeah. of this. But the idea that it was on TV, I'm like, this has to be a parody of something else, right? And I'm like, no, this is the, the guy with the news tease in the, the Christmas special. And um, I'm so glad you tracked him down. And, uh, you know, I, I it, it, the fact that it's in the credits means that, you know, probably it was like, ah, we can't spend that much time on it. But uh, talk about getting to talk to Roland Smith about that, who, you know, had a, a very uh, long, illustrious broadcasting career, but uh, probably people just remember him for fighting the Frizzies, right? No, he's another guy. Time, I feel like, makes everything easier. So, like, he, he thinks it's funny now, but, like, the, I mean, I think there was a period of time where he did not find it funny. Oh, sure. So, like, he talks about his Wikipedia. If you go to his Wikipedia page, uh, so this guy's, like, won tons of awards, been, like, a newsman, like, all this stuff, great career. And you look at his Wikipedia page, like, two-thirds of it is fighting the Frizzies. As it relates to the special. So like, that's what he's been like regulated to. Uh, no, but he was like, I mean, it was just that scene. I, I was hilarious, but there was nowhere to like place it. I'm just like, yeah. this needs to go in the film somewhere, but there was no, I'm just like, let's just throw it in the credits. Cause it's kind of, it just, it, it kind of threw the, the vibe off wherever we put it, where it was like a side, it was like a side tangent. So it kind of felt like it stalled the film, but I didn't want it to just be a, an extra on like a Blu-ray. I wanted it to be like in the movie. So yeah, the, the credits is a nice little bonus feature at the end if you stick around. Yeah, no, no, and I was uh, I was definitely glad uh, to you know get the get the chance to to see him there. It's uh you know not something I ever would have thought of. Like, oh yeah, what what does he think about it? Yeah, but, I mean uh, it's an online interview, but I, th I think the interview was like seven or eight minutes. So it's, I mean it's not like he has a, a wealth of information to pull from it, but like he was yeah. just the fact that he has a sense of humor about it now is great. Well, yeah, and it was probably a, a very long time before he realized that people were seeing this. And, you know, I mean, that night he reported on the Frizzies on the Channel 2 News in New York, but didn't <laughs> didn't think about how important that was going yeah. to be for, uh, exactly. for people, you know. And uh, one of the people that you talked to that uh, I think was, was a great choice is not somebody who would have come immediately to mind, but, uh, you know, Gilbert Gottfried, who's since passed on, but... You know, he did that uh, amazing colossal podcast where he really spent time on old Hollywood, sort of, you know, some of the the lower tier, you know, I mean, he did like 90 minutes with Larry Storch, you know what I mean? And yeah. so if there was anybody to comment on the variety aspect of the holiday special, and I mean, I think he's got some great observations. Talk about 
uh, approaching Gilbert, but sp- not just like, hey, Gilbert, we want to do an interview. It's like, we want to talk to you about the Star Wars holiday special. Talk a little bit about uh, interacting with Gilbert on that. Yeah, like his podcast is the main reason we reached out to him, but it was also like my co-director, Steve Kozak, had a connection thrown through Jimmy Kimmel. He works the okay. Jimmy Kimmel show. But he was like the first celebrity where I was like, all right, he's related to this and I think we can get him. It was also that was like during the the heyday of covid so like that was done remotely so he was in florida we were here and uh just hired a guy to go out and shoot and like film it in his backyard uh but i mean it was it was a fun interview like i mean he goes uh i mean there's a lot of that's just filthy that we couldn't use like he has like a 10 minute like thing that he does on just uh b arthur and everything it's just it's it's like an aristocrats like star wars holiday special type joke yeah before you said that i was going to be like yeah anybody who's seen the aristocrats knows that uh yeah there's going to be a lot of uh gilbert that ends up on the cutting room floor but his observations about you know harvey corman and b arthur and you know the the people who were in the movie i thought it was uh it was a great insight you know and uh you know, the Harvey Corman, you have an interview with him where he's like, yeah, I don't even remember doing it. And I'm like, I believe him, you know, because like yeah. it was, you know, it was probably not even a well-paying gig. It was probably like a couple of really long days that he was happy to forget about, you know? Yeah, I think it was like two. I think he was on set two days that he shot. And then, I mean, the other thing, too, is like if you weren't like 20 or younger, Star Wars wasn't really a thing to you at this time. Like you're talking like Art Carney has, I don't think Art Carney has any idea what, what Star Wars was or cared <laughs> like none. And he's just like showing up and he, when we talked about the, but like he was uh, drunk. Most of the shoot is what the director said. So he had to shoot all the stuff earlier in the day because he, by after lunch, he's pretty out of it. <laughs> yeah. Somebody described uh, his, his trailer, you know, he, I guess there was a, a shower, a bathtub in there just filled with ice and liquor bottles, yeah, and then out, so, bottles of alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, look, I don't, I don't think you're telling tales about our Carney out of school, you know, by uh, talking about that. Uh, let's see. Uh, so this uh, comment in the chat, uh, I was 12 when it came out. We had no idea it was the start of something big. I think that's the interesting thing because you've got, you know, like Kevin Smith talking about it, you know, the age that he was when he saw it. Uh, you know, there, there's that chance that a kid might see it and go like, I don't know, it was pretty cool, whatever. It was Star Wars on TV and not really think about you know what it was and i thought it's great that you included that exchange from the goldbergs where uh where jeff garland's just like did you watch the same thing i did that was terrible yeah you know and i i think that uh it's interesting that you do have some of the really diehard people who know a lot about this but are like no i'm legitimately a fan of it and i mean any of us who've watched it are like okay i guess that's one way to react to it i i don't understand it but, uh, you know, you always try to respect when people have different opinions. Well, but- it's, just, it's, go- it's going back to that feeling they had watching it. That's what they're tapping into is that nostalgia. That's why they love it. I don't think they actually like it because of the context. That's that's the, yeah, if you're a kid, you have a different attachment. I mean, I have films that I grew up in that I probably feel different about than like my kid's going to feel about because I grew up with it. Oh yeah, no. I was talking about this recently. Like you know, when I was a when I was a kid, there was this uh, Japanese. They dubbed it, you know, this animated series uh, Voltron, and I loved it. And when I first had Netflix, I'm like, oh my god, they've got Voltron. I watched like four minutes. I'm like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. I can't believe I used <laughs> to watch this every single day. You know, <laughs> uh, so yeah, sometimes things don't hold up. And yeah, I think your attachment with the kid, you know, and look if. I guess it's aired on a Friday. So kids didn't talk about it the next day at school, but like on Monday at school, it might've been like, 
hey, yeah, who was that guy in the cartoon with the fork? It's almost like you wouldn't talk about like, you know, itchy and lumpy and any of that. Like I could see, you know, selective memory from the kid just being, you know, from kids of that era, just being like, I don't know. I, I thought uh, some of it was uh, was actually, you know, pretty cool. Um, yeah, and this is this is dark, by the way. We didn't put this in the movie because it was kind of a buzzkill. But the Jonestown massacre was the next day oh. after the holiday special, <laughs> so that kind of took over the news for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, yeah, I can I can see that sort of like, well, all right, but it's interesting because you know, I I was just going, I thought better of a comment I was going to make, but in all honesty, it wasn't terribly reviewed. I mean, it was like you know, you show some of the press after it aired. And they're, you know, it's it's not glowing, but largely people are like, yeah, whatever, you know, put Star Wars on TV, right? I mean, it it wasn't considered a train wreck by everyone. I mean, George hated it, but uh, you know, it, it it seemed like it was at least decently received. Is that what you found as as yeah. you were? Yeah, I mean, 13, 13 million people turned turned in to watch it. I mean, it's also the back in the day. That, I mean, there's three channels. Yeah. So like your <laughs> options were like Love Boat, and I can't remember what the other one was, but. You know, a lot of people turned in. A lot of people tuned out after the first hour, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was it was it was well reviewed. Like the Hollywood Reporter review of it at the time was, I would say, it wasn't very positive, but it was positive. Yeah, and like that Starlog magazine that came out uh, like a month like a month later said how how basically it was just like really, you know, a big swing on TV that seemed to I mean they didn't hit everything. It wasn't all positive, but it was mostly positive. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, in the chat, old man has, it's amazingly incoherent, but it's got a kind of harmless variety show thing. And I think you're talking about earlier, this idea that so much of TV was disposable, you know, I mean, by 1978, the concept of reruns existed, you know, at least for some programming, but at the same time, a lot of it was just like, we just got to put something on the air. Let's put the star Wars on there. And, uh, you know, I mean, to the extent that George was like, do we have to air this? And I was like, well, yeah, we spent a lot of money on it. And I was like, all right, yeah, I mean, whatever. They spent a million dollars on this, which at the time is crazy. I mean, that's just an insane amount of money in 1978 for a TV special. Yeah, no, I- I- exactly. And the interesting thing is you, you alluded to the sort of the behind the scenes, and this is uh, featured very clearly in the film that uh, the director, uh, David, sorry, what was his last name? Uh, David Akamba. Akamba. He only directed like the first three days and then they had to replace him, right? To his credit, those three days were very hard. A lot of hard, like that's the, uh, it's pretty much everything but the Wookiee stuff, but it's like, so all the Wookiee stuff is mostly Steve Bender, but you have like the acrobat stuff that was a pain, Jefferson Starship. Uh, I mean, the main thing where he the, went off the rails was that cantina scene uh, with B. Arthur. I mean, they shot, they basically had like two 20, 20, 20 or 22 hour days back to back, which meant that you were off for two hours and went right back into another 22 yeah. hour day. And so they, they, they had all these penalties cause they're going to overtime and people are, you know, losing their mind. And like he had burned through like a significant portion of the budget in, in the, in the three days he was there. So then they, uh, they bring in, uh, a, a director who had done like Elvis's comeback special. And uh, I'm sorry, I thought my notes yeah, were Steve Bender. That's it, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, talk about sort of having somebody just kind of come in and I don't know, I mean, and just sort of like, all right, you just need somebody to steer the ship a little bit. The special is going to be what it is. You know, this is what's been written. Uh, let's just try and get it done without, uh, you know, breaking the budget, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, Steve Bender, that, like, he was friends with uh, Smith and Hemi, and it was basically they're calling in a favor, like, hey, this is going to crash and burn. It's like calling in, like, the A-list talent to come in and say that's what level he was. Uh, yeah, so he, he viewed, Steve viewed himself as a uh, fireman. Basically come in, put out the fire, get this settled, and then he was going to go on to the next production. So he knew he couldn't be involved in the edit, which he's, to this day, he said he still regrets because uh, he just came in to get the production done. So he's, he came in and, like, redid the set because the Wookiee set was also designed uh, in this weird way where they couldn't get cameras in. So they had to cut the set in half where the Wookiee home was and kind of <laughs> open it up so you could get cameras in and out because it just wasn't designed with that in mind. Uh, so, I mean, he came in, I mean, cause like, but for him coming in and the Welches, it would never have been done. It just would have been a riot. They would have closed it off. Cause it, it's yeah. just, I'll, they just want to get to the finish line to get something they could air that was passable. And yeah, they, I, they did accomplish that. Well, let's uh, talk about the Wookiee, uh, the Wookiee sequences as old man hound uh, again in the chat as a variety show, which I forgive them for who was responsible for having 30 minutes of Wookiees just growling at each other with no subtitles. Now, I, I love the little trick you have in the film where you do sort of a, a very, you know, a fast forward to be like, well, just how much time was there? And I believe it's uh, the, like the first, like nine, nine, not, not the first, like nine, nine minutes, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah nine minutes. <laughs> nine minutes. So to, to their credit uh, yeah. though, but there's more than that. If you took, I should have gone through and been like how much of all the work, that's just the first nine minutes of that yeah. in a row. But if you added up all, it's probably a good 15, 20 minutes of the whole specials and Wookiees, my guess. Yeah, well, yeah, because that, that's just when Art Carney comes in to kind of save the day and start yeah. talking to them, you know. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Eric says, uh, the all Wookiee speak triggers me to this day. I mean, it's uh, it, it's something I mean, to sit through. I mean, according to Bruce Valanche, that's all George. George was just like, I don't want to – he's like, I don't want subtitles. I want to have the Wookiee speaking, and actually, I, I don't know why. That, but that, that that's – something that was yeah. very important to Lucas. Yeah, and 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 I, I believe it was Bruce Valanche talking in your film about how it's you know they weren't allowed to use subtitles, which you know George uses subtitles in Return of the Jedi. So at a certain point, I guess he's like, well, I guess I guess they're okay, but yeah, that it just would have uh, it it would have certainly helped to be understand. You know, I mean, I think the performers who played the Wookiees did what they could, but it's like you can't really. You can't really mime when you've got like a you know a, a giant uh, furry head on. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. Well, uh, what's funny too is uh, they hired so they hired Pat Prof and uh, Lenny Rips to write because they had written for Shields and Yarnell, which was like a mime show right. where they had done so they had experienced writing for people who couldn't speak, and that was like oh you should do ours. But I mean, if you read the script, it's actually funny reading the script because it's like. I don't know, it's like 10, 12 pages of just prose. There's no dialogue. It's just like describing what the Wookiees are doing in like block text. <laughs> uh, and uh, Eric, again, that's George's contribution. Yes, the uh, the idea yeah. that, uh, that, that he's like, I got no notes. Oh, except uh, don't uh, use subtitles for the Wookiees. So yeah, it's it, it just the idea that, I don't know, putting the show together. I mean, you you speak with someone from Jefferson Starship and you know they had a song they performed it they did what they could but it was like i, I don't, don't quite understand the thinking of that and i guess diane carroll's part they wanted that to be share right but uh share, you know if, if ever there's yeah. a decision that uh share should not regret it's the uh passing on the star wars holiday special you know although how interesting would it have been if she had been had done that <laughs> <laughs> that's a great point <laughs> like 
maybe she would have had the career that she had. About we, I really wish we could. Uh, Diane Carroll didn't really want to do an interview, and she unfortunately passed away uh, sure. any before we could even talk to her. But I would love to at some point, like when she filmed that, she has no idea what's on the other side of the camera. Like she didn't know she's gonna be intercut with a Wookiee in a chair being aroused to, <laughs> you know, her talking. I just want to know, like, yeah. what was the direction, and like, at what point were you told? Like, did your agent or someone say, like, "Hey, did you like I caught this last night"? You, it's not what we thought. Yeah, like, I just <laughs> the idea of that is just so funny to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I yeah, and it's uh, you you've got uh, clips of uh, you know all the main cast uh, talking about it. Uh, you know, uh, the Harrison Ford on Late Night with Conan O'Brien, just sort of like you know shell shocked and like you know doesn't want to talk about it, but. You've got a, a clip where Carrie Fisher actually sings some of her song, which uh, yeah. I, I was like, I mean, she knows that song, uh, you know, however many years later, you know, decades later. Uh, and I, I think that, uh, you know, Mark Hamill has, uh, you know, some funny thoughts on it. But the interesting thing, and you do address it, is that the thinking was that his makeup was so crazy in this because he'd been in that car accident, which you know, also the thinking was that, you know, he gets attacked by the, the Wampa, the snow monster and empire strikes back because he had a scar now, but apparently neither of those things were true. So this was more learning that I got from uh, a disturbance in the forest, which is the movie we're talking about with uh, Jeremy Kuhn, one of the directors Uh, talk a little bit about sort of those, those revelations. I mean, because if, if you see Mark Hamill in this, it's like, what, what is that? You know what I mean? What's going yeah, on? I mean, so the, yeah. the accident that happened was because I didn't know this till I got into it. Cause I heard the rumor about the accident. That's why they did it. And it kind of made sense, but like the accident happened before star Wars even came out. So like Mark Hamill did all star Wars press looking how he looked post accident. So it's not so much. I mean, I think there's some difference, but it's not like, cause I always thought it happened after star Wars. Was. Yeah, no, I, I, did, like I, weeks, I, I thought it happened months before the special. That's not even, true. even seeing, your movie yesterday i until you said it right now i actually thought that's that's when it happened you know i didn't uh i didn't realize that yeah 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 it was like it was like january of 77 so they they had to do it affected the pickup shots they did for the first uh for star wars but i mean this is like 18 months later i mean the gist of it is that we got down to it is our our theory is that it's just crappy makeup because you have these people who are there's two things so that looks terrible but the uh it's it's as heavy makeup because they have people who are used to doing like theatrical shows. They're doing the makeups. So there's a lot of makeup going on, and then when this is copied multiple times, the degradation of the video just gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah, and that's those two things. Because if you look at the the master copy we have, the makeup actually doesn't look as bad. He's not as glowing as he is in like most of the the clips you see on YouTube. Yeah, no, and and that was uh, that was fairly clear that uh you certainly had uh, access to uh, a version that's much better i mean there's like parts where you you have like the old vhs tracking in mine and there's like parts that drop out you know little things like that uh so it's yeah so i mean basically the cast kind of had to do this i mean was it was it i don't know covered under promotion in your contracts or did they no, get I mean, locked into it Harrison Ford talks about it was in his contract. I think he's just saying that to be funny. I mean, at oh, the end okay. of the day, what it did, at the end of the day, what it was, at least according to Mark Hamill, was uh, George just called him up. like, will you please do this? We're trying to sell toys. Like, we just need to keep it, the momentum going for Star Wars, and this will help. Will you please do it? And Mark Hamill's like, all right, fine. I'll do it for you. Uh, I also, I mean, I don't know what they got paid, but I mean, at this time, like, none of these people are like, 
they're big stars, but they're not really rich yet. So, I mean, I assume they got paid well enough that it was worth them. Cause like, I mean, they were all on set for maybe, I mean, all the actors are probably on set a couple of days over the shoot. Yeah. It's not like they were there for weeks on end. Right. And, and the example I I've used a number of times when I talk about Harrison Ford as an actor is that this special is what it is. It's written the way it is. The performances are what they are, but he's the one guy that you look at it. You go, yeah, that's, that's Han Solo right there. I don't know. I don't know about anything that's around him, but he's still yeah. like, you know, you you see the caliber and it's, you know, I mean, in no way disparaging Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, anybody else. It's just, you're like, oh yeah, no, no, he, that he really still is that guy. And, uh, you know, you don't really think about, you know, the what went on behind the scenes. But yeah, I mean, after the first Star Wars, uh, obviously there there wasn't uh, the the big money there. Um, talking about Mark Hamill reminded me. I wanted to circle back to uh, talk a little bit who Charlie Lippincott was because I think something that I, I was I was aware of in a general sense, but the extent to which he sort of built up the fanfare for star Wars long before. I mean, I think even before it had been filmed, but certainly before it was released, uh, talk about Charlie's role and basically banging the yeah. drum for star Wars. Yeah. So Charlie, uh, met Lucas early on. He was a 20th century Fox employee and some George worked out some deal where he was going to come work on star Wars. He was like one of the first employees that came over, but his whole thing was marketing. And he's really the mastermind between behind all, all of star Wars success. Like, he had the idea of like having the book come out like nine months before the movie and these comics. And he was going to comic cons like a year in advance with Mark Hamill to go basically stir up interest in this and show pictures from it. And all of that led up. So when the film opened, I mean, it didn't open, I think it opened in a small amount of theaters, but when it opened, like there was huge demand that just exploded from there. But I mean, but for all that work, I'm not sure that star Wars necessarily would have been, I think it still would have been a hit, but I don't think it would have been as, you know, explosive as it was cause due to all that leg work that he had done. But he's, it was really important to us because I don't feel he gets the credit that he deserves. And even Lucas says that he's a, 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 the main, a main reason that Star Wars was successful as it was. Yeah, because I mean, as, as good as the movie is, if people don't show up and see it, I mean, we certainly wouldn't be talking about it, you know, 40 eight 46 years later yeah. you know so uh yeah and i think charlie lippincott's approach to like yeah going to comic cons and going to star trek conventions you know is also yeah. like yeah I, i'm not necessarily something i would have thought of but it's like yeah of course it's like there's a demand for do you want these kinds of stories uh you know we're going to bring you one and yeah i had always known that the the marvel comic it like it was six issues so that the sixth issue came out i guess in may of 77 so it was like timed to do that which is crazy to think of. i mean there's not it's not like empire or return of the jedi where there's actual like revelations like story-wise that you would get ruined by having the comic books come out that early but uh it's interesting to think about you know, doing that now, any kind of tie-ins that uh, would come, you know, to a major property uh, like that. You know, you were talking about, obviously, this would be a big part of the the Charlie Lippincott's, you know, in, under his purview, the, the toys. And I'm glad that it's mentioned in here. I am always just amazed that the demand for Star Wars was such that in Christmas 1977, they got millions of people to buy empty boxes you know yeah. uh, with the promise that one day <laughs> you'd have star wars toys to put in there and 
the the I, I actually actually, think it's, I think it says February to June. Yeah, we, it's Christmas it's February, February to June. You'll yeah, get it. It's it's not February to March. It's like no, somewhere in this like the first half of next year, you're gonna yeah. get these toys, <clears> and it, it's crazy to think about. But I didn't think about it in the context until I was watching your film, uh, Disturbance in the Force, that the Christmas special is basically kicking off in mid November the first Christmas season where stores did have star Wars toys. So obviously that's an incredibly important part of it, you know, to just like remind people of star Wars and the toys Uh, talk a little bit about that focus. And, and I see that, uh, you know, I I noticed in the film, you have a little, you have some footage of, I guess the, uh, the prototypes there was, there were going to be toys tied to the holiday special, right? Yeah. The Wookiee family. So like itchy and Melitobac and all of them and lumpy yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there was enough that made, so that's the only existing prototypes that were ever made. And it's a collector uh, that has them. those nice stuff. Let us come and actually film the, the actual pieces that they, that they collected. But yeah, I mean, it just kind of shows that they, they're also going to do uh, their sketches of uh, Bobo Fett's dinosaur or whatever he rides. Like that was going to be a toy, but they never made it. So, I mean, the holiday special was going to be an opportunity to monetize. They thought for other characters, but I mean, if you look at the holiday special's main purpose, I feel was to sell toys that Christmas. That was like George had a lot riding on the on the merchandising, and he was self funding Empire with you know that money. And like, had Empire not worked out, Star Wars would die out. The second film is so important, and the toys were kind of the what was making that was that possible was the merchandising. So he had a lot. I mean, he was he had to be stressed during this time because he had so much riding, and like this this helps make all that possible it's a great point because obviously in hindsight him getting the merchandising is you know so much more profitable than anything he would have been paid as a director you know uh but this is that i think i think 20th century fox saved a hundred thousand dollars even in the merchandising rights that was (laughs) a trade-off right exactly and i i think that uh somebody in in your film talks about this interesting period between star wars and empire strikes back obviously we now call it a new hope but star wars and empire strikes back is you know, and I mean, I've I've read the comics from that era. There's like a, a jab of the hut that you know he's like humanoid. He's got like yellow he's a skin. Big green rabbit. Yeah, you're right. He's just a big green. Yeah, right. The big green rabbit. You know, and it's just like it's just some of the most random stuff. And it was just you know, it's kind of in line with the Donnie and Marie special. In all honesty, you know, and the idea that it might not be a success. You know, even me as a kid i i never even considered it but uh it's interesting to think about how real that was uh old man hannah had a specific question i don't know if you have an answer but from a sales standpoint uh it is shocking how aggressively unappealing the wookies are that's actually not the sorry he had a question before that that i mean I, i don't know i mean the wookies look like the wookies sorry the question that i wanted to read uh was how much of a sales bump do people think the special gave after all you said there did you say there were 13 million viewers is that what you said 13 million people 13 tuned, million. tuned in to yeah. watch it did anybody have any ideas of like projections of like i mean just that many eyeballs i mean you know obviously it, to us in hindsight it seems like a foregone conclusion conclusion that they would sell like you know a billion toys but uh, you know maybe if 13 million families uh, family members aren't watching it that doesn't happen you know i actually don't know but i mean i feel like yeah. it definitely didn't hurt yeah. I mean, back in those days like i mean I feel like still all press is good press, but back then that was especially true because it wasn't like 
I mean, if you wanted to get your message across, you had newspapers, radio, and then the three TV channels. So if you could have an audience of 13 million people to talk to for two hours, that's pretty captivating. And they ran the commercials for the toys during it. So that was a big thing. Yeah. Just even see C3PO and R2D2 in a commercial with like all the toys that were coming out. Yeah. Um, uh, this question, were any toys actually released? I know the answer is no, they didn't actually make them. You know, I mean, I think no. that, the, you know, there's just those prototypes. And, uh, you know, I know you feature in here the fact that it was something that I always knew about, but of course, you know, nobody ever had that uh, the rocket and Boba Fett's like, jetpack was supposed to shoot out but of course it never did by the time anybody got it uh you know so there's so much focus with the toys which you know admittedly as someone who was four when empire strikes back came out the toys were kind of everything really you know i mean yeah. it was it, you know it was i i you know i had a i had a record where they told the story and i had a picture book that went with it but i mean it was really the only way you could relive star wars in your house was whatever you're going to play with with the toys so i think that probably in that respect, it's like, it doesn't matter how bad the holiday special was because they well, really wanted to just sell toys. Right, Jeremy? Yeah. Well, I mean, like my, so my first memories of toys I've been playing with were Star Wars figures because my brothers are nine and 10 years older than me. So they were like the perfect age when Star Wars came out and we had everything like we were spoiled kids, I guess, because we had like so many toys to play with. There were Star Wars, it was all Star Wars stuff. But like, I'm sure I played with the toys before I saw any of the movies. Like right. I, I can't imagine as like a one year old I went to go see Empire. Like I just or if I did it didn't matter. <laughs> right. I well and my brother's five years older than me. So that's like the toys yeah. were in the house because they were his. And you yeah. know, so he would have been seven when Star Wars came out, you know. So it was like I probably also, you know, had my hands on the toys before I ever saw it. I do like I said, I remember going to the re release when I was three, but I think the Star Wars toys were around long before that. And, you know, just sort of building up you know, this, this, I was going to use the word empire, but that's not what I, you know, I didn't mean to uh, allude to the second film, but yeah. it's just sort of really building this up. Um, obviously uh, you have some archival interviews with George. It was he the person you most wanted to talk to, or were there other people that you were like, Oh, I wish we could have, you know, even gotten a, you know, a half an hour with George Lucas, or was there anyone that you were like, oh, I would have, I, oh, I mean, to I talk to. I would have taken five minutes with George Lucas. Yeah. I would have taken any time. We would have taken any time he was going to offer. We, we kind of like floated out, but we didn't have like a direct connection to him. And we also kind of just felt at the end of the day, like the answer is going to be no. That's yeah. the, that was just kind of like, I, I also had this feeling that I, I was partially scared that he was going to give an interview and like, I don't know, maybe twisted his arm and he didn't really want to do it. And then his answers would be kind of like, yes, no. And like, not that great. <laughs> uh i just could i could just see him kind of being in a bad mood doing it yeah like but, like when john favreau in your film thinks he'd be excited yeah. for boba fett's tuning fork and he's like he's like because it's canon he's like not really <laughs> yeah exactly that kind of stuff and i'm just like well now we have to include it because we sat down with them but yeah i mean there is some there is some type of like fun to it with like i also kind of felt that he might be in on the joke more it's kind of fun part of the special I think that's fun is this just, it's just kind of irksome to like Lucasfilm and maybe George, like it's not that big of a deal to him, but you just know that it's kind of like that annoying joke. It's like if you have a, a person in your friend group that you constantly make fun of and you just kind of just kind of pick at the same thing over and over again, <laughs> even though it's dumb, I just kind of feel like it's, it's kind of like that. But once they're on the joke, it kind of ruins it. 
Yeah, in in the in your film, you talk about the fact that uh, I, I went to Disneyland with my kids just two weeks ago, and there is a lot of Life Day merchandise now, which I think is is fascinating because I think ten years ago, even you certainly wouldn't have, you know, just that. Maybe it's because Disney bought the license, you know. But uh, I think yeah, before a- that, go ahead. Sorry. I'm saying there's a Life Day Wookiee figure out. I, yeah. I have it in the other room they, where it's just like it's officially licensed toy. <laughs> yeah, whatever the uh whatever the 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 story that uh, the anime story is called the the faithful Wookiee or whatever, there's like a yeah. golden book story of that, you know. I mean it's yeah, so it's like they've definitely done stuff with it. Um, and you did uh confirm my suspicion that uh the Wookiees were all wearing those red robes at the end because it was cheaper than putting everybody in Wookiee suits, right? <laughs> Yeah, and all those all those uh, Wookiee masks are all just Don Post masks that they bought off out of a store. Like they're not even like light. Like they're not. It's just like it's the Wookiee mask that they would any anyone could go buy at the time. So like yeah, just like you know, if it, the same masks were because they filmed it in the summer, you know, so the same masks were bought like you know months later for people to be Chewbacca for Halloween, basically. <laughs> so yeah, and they they would like comb them and color them differently, but yeah, it was just easier to be like we're gonna cover these people in robes and have basically worry about their heads, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, uh, old man Hound uh, again. Has uh, anyone ever done a clean edit of the holiday special where they edit it down to be watchable? So you talked to Seth Green in there, and he talks about having access. I guess they were able to watch it in a screening room, but it's like it's not really out there. I mean, obviously Lucasfilm had it, but it's not. They're not loaning it out. You know what I mean? It's not like you can't borrow it. You know, that, that's my assumption, right? No, I mean it's on YouTube, and I think there's at least three different versions on YouTube. the be- The best publicly, the best public version that I've seen is the Zion cut that you can buy on Etsy. I don't know what they've done to it, but that's the best looking version I've seen, at yeah. least from a quality perspective. But I'm I'm not sure. I'm not oh. sure editing it down is going to help. Uh, no, I know, but uh, <laughs> and, and neither is like you know doing a 4K conversion. You know, I mean, it's not really going to change anything. And uh, Eric Connor, I'm glad that your Life Day orb uh, brings you joy, and sorry that it also brings a, a mild rash. Yeah. So it, it is. It's kind of fascinating that there's this legacy to it. And uh, I know that uh, we were talking earlier that you know you've you've shown the film uh, to audiences, and uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that there's you know the kind of reaction to it. Uh, what do you think for you personally was either the biggest surprise for you in putting it together, or again in terms of once it was finished, was there anything that you? heard from someone or anything that you were surprised by a reaction what's kind of the biggest surprise associated with the holiday special uh, i mean i think i mentioned earlier the biggest surprise is just that i have way more empathy for lucas than i did when i said on this i was <laughs> kind a of great the, point. Yeah, yeah. what a jerk like basically what a jerk why is he shut this down why is he open it and like why did he even do this and like because I, I think people kind of take personal offense a lot of people we, we kevin smith talks about reaching like these things that we love we kind of take them internally and like when they do something with it that we don't like, we feel personally offended. And I think that's the way a lot of people feel. We're like, I can't believe this. This was like a secret that was kept from me for, for years. And uh, I didn't know about it. I mean, the, the other thing that was a surprise. So in the course of making any film or any, actually any anything that's artistic, I feel you reach a certain point where you're just in your bubble working on it. And you, you, when I was editing, you hit a point where I'm like, does anyone care about this? Am I just wasting my time on a topic that no one cares about? <laughs> 
And I sent it to a couple of friends to be like, am I off base? That this is interesting or is this just stupid? And they all came back. We're like, dude, this keep going. This is hilarious. I'm so happy you're doing this. And that kind of, uh, yeah, it was just, they need to kick a kick in the butt to be like, all right, this is worth doing. There's potential here. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, you're reminding me that, uh, I, once we had a, a, a Christmas party and, uh, I, I put it on and I, let's say there were 10 people there. Nine people were fascinated by it, but there's just one person who's just like, what, why are we watching this? I'm like, I, I don't think you understand. It's, 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 yeah, it's really bad. Why are we, I'm like, all right, I get it. That's, it's not for everybody. Yeah. You know, you just like, there had to be people who were, you know, that put on CBS that night were like, well, this is crap. Let's see what's going on in the love boat. You know, <laughs> actually the, one of the biggest surprising things is that the documentary is crossing over to people who are not star Wars fans, which was not an, I mean, I assume those people were a lost cause. That was never going to happen. But, like, I have a friend that's uh, older that hates Star Wars. He oh, thinks it's okay. the dumbest thing. And he happened to watch it. I don't know why he watched it, but he, I, he, I, I sent him a link. And he uh, yeah, he just thought it was fa- – he just loved it. He thought it was, like, a great ride. It was funny and didn't have to have any knowledge of Star Wars. So, like, that's – I mean, it's kind of like we made Napoleon Dynamite. We made it for, like, people our age in the 20s. We never expected to have kids like it. So it's kind of like you have this whole another demographic that – comes in which is always surprising yeah no and it, it's interesting because there is you know look there is definitely a, a train wreck quality to it you know there, that uh that documentary about uh, the the making of the initial iteration of that uh terry gilliam uh donkey Man, La movie yeah, yeah. The, the the with Lost johnny depp which, or something like that yeah yeah so Lost La mancha and at one point there's so many disasters with production delays and all that. And Terry Gilliam turns to the director of it. He's like, well, at least you're getting a great movie out of this. And you're like, yeah, "Yeah." (laughs) Terry Gilliam was smart enough to know, like that's the movie, the movie about making about how we can't make this movie uh, is, is way more interesting. And I guess I can see, it's almost like people who hate star Wars might like your film, um, certainly more than the sequel trilogy or the prequels, you know? Yeah, it was so much more interesting. Like, I mean, Hodorowsky's Dune is like one of my favorite documentaries about, you know, his version of Dune that never got made. But it's just, yeah, yeah I mean, it's kind of inspiration of that where, like, uh, I think we can learn more. I mean, we talk about in the end of the film, too, where it's like you can – failure in and of itself is not – is in and of itself is a good thing in the sense that, like, you keep trying and you learn from it and you eventually succeed. So just because you fail something doesn't mean you don't get anything out of it. Yeah, I, uh, I I think that uh, it's, you know, now that, well, let me ask it in a different way. Do you think that, and it kind of comes up in the documentary, do you think that uh, there actually will be some kind of official release, even if it's streaming? Just be like, yeah, just put it up there at this point, just to let people kind of see it. Or is it just like, ah, it's just too bad. We can't just put the whole thing out there. You know, we don't, we don't ever want people, yeah. we don't want to sign off in it even in that way, you know? I think one day it might loosen up. I mean, I think Kathleen Kennedy does not want it out. So as long as yeah. she's in charge, it's not happening. That that's my I don't know if that's true, but that's just that's I feel like I don't know. I feel like her and George had some kind of understanding or something. I mean, this is all like fan rumors as well. So sure. I probably know neither of them care, but it just seems like it seems like a touchy topic for people who are higher up. And uh, like as long as those people are in charge. Like if John Favreau or Dave Filoni was running everything. I yeah. think they would be like, yeah, this needs to come out. And eventually oh. I think those people probably will be in charge. I, 
I, I, I think you're right. I mean, uh, Filoni is more in charge than he was uh, just a, you know, a month ago. Yeah. And I, I think if, if they were entirely in charge, I think you'd get an actual, like, you know, big budget sequel to it. And like, no, let's go back for life day again. You know, let's, let's have yeah. Ray Finn and Poe Dameron go to the wiki homeworld. You know, let's get the new characters. Let's do a new generation of, uh, of life day. Uh, so uh, one final thing uh, in, you talked about, sort of getting the the film was a, it was seemed like it was a lot of like crowdfunding getting it together um and you know you have access to just some tremendous uh, people and most of them i think I, i've mentioned um was there anybody you know who early on you know, or at any point in the process reached out like just willing to help out that you know like were you surprised that weird al was like i'd love to talk about the the Christmas special, you know, I mean, is there anybody yeah, like I mean, that? Who uh, almost everyone we reached out to was just like, yeah, I want to, I mean, my, like weird out. We interviewed was like, Hey, can we have 10 minutes before your show? Like he was here where I live. And I'm like, uh, can we just come in? We'll ask you these five questions and then be out. And he's like, yeah, I'd be happy. I'd love to be a part of it. Uh, I think my favorite response when I interviewed Kevin Smith, his, uh, I was just like, Oh, hey, thank you for doing this. And he's like, He's like, oh man, definitely. He's like, if, if I had seen this movie and I wasn't in it, I'd be really pissed off. Like he was like, <laughs> I need to be in this movie. Uh, so, it, it, I mean, the whole fan community has just been so supportive. Like we've reached out for help and done stuff. And it's just kind of like, I mean, cause this is about as independent as it gets. Like it's all self-funded. It's just like us going out and shooting it. I mean, I've run camera on about a bunch of these interviews and I'm not necessarily a camera guy. I mean, I came out of retirement to edit this cause I couldn't afford to pay an editor. So it's the first thing I've edited in like, uh, I mean, it's probably been, I don't know, 15, 16 years. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was kind of like knocking the rust off of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so uh, a disturbance in the force.com is, is, is it that simple? That's where people go to, to, yeah, order we don't it have and... the, we don't have the A on our domain because someone else owns that. So our domain oh. is just disturbance in the force, which isn't ideal, okay. but, uh, yeah, I don't know who owns it, but I, I couldn't afford it anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's uh, you, yeah, so you get get creative there, and uh, people can uh, get physical uh, copies of it. And uh, is there is there anything included in say the Blu-ray or maybe even if it's streaming? Is there are there bonus features or is that uh, something for the future or? Maybe in the future, I, I tried to put together some bonus features and like, to be perfectly honest, I, like everything that I wanted in the movies in the movie. So that, yeah. that's a great answer. It's, it's no, kind of like, it's, I, I, <laughs> it's an honest answer. And, and like you said, the fact that you got Roland Smith over the credits because you didn't need to spend that much time on it, that had that been a bonus feature, that would have been fun, but I, I'm glad you were able to include it. So, uh, so the the film will be out there uh, for people to get, and I, I uh, highly encourage everyone. Uh, we've got uh, Eric in the chat is uh, looking forward to uh, getting it himself. So uh, appreciate that. Uh, awesome. And uh, what's uh, so? What's next? Is there is there something that uh, you're working on that you can talk about? Is there a secret project you can uh, yeah. allude to without giving specifics? What's next for you, Jeremy? Uh, the next thing on deck is I've been producing uh, a documentary on the comedian Gallagher, guy that smashed watermelons. Oh, it's a, yeah, it's a very I mean, I, interesting kind of dark. because well, there's Gallagher, there's Gallagher two, and there's yeah. Oh my gosh, no Gallagher is uh, absolutely fascinating uh, uh, subject. And is yeah. he is 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 uh, the main Gallagher? Is he still with us? I don't actually know off the top. He of He passed head. away a little over a year ago. Okay, like, we, have the, we have the cooperation of the state. Like we've talked to his brothers. Like we've pulled in like all of these 
I don't everything you want to know about Gallagher, like we're it's going to be this movie. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, that's that's a that's a fantastic topic for uh, yeah. a documentary. So disturbance in the force.com. Uh any uh any other ways? I guess people look, I went to that website. I wrote to you and like, uh, like two days later we're talking. So uh, obviously if yeah. people want to get in touch. That's the best way to do it. Isn't it? Yeah. It's direct through line to me. I, I made the website too. So it's like, <laughs> as yeah. I said, this is a very like indie project. So it's about as indie as it gets. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, we've been talking for a little bit more than an hour. There's plenty more, uh, that we didn't even touch on. I think just for the, the clips from Donnie and Marie and Bob Hope and, you know, any of that stuff, I don't know how I had no idea about those, but I'm kind of glad that the first time I saw them, you're talking about the pristine quality, the master yeah. that Donnie Wasmond had. I'm glad I kind of got to see it that way, you know. And uh, funny enough, an unintentional spoiler, having a brother and sister play Luke and Leia uh, in, a, uh, in a narrative. <laughs> Donnie yeah. takes credit for that, by the way. He brought that up in his interviews. Like, I think I inspired George. <laughs> he, he probably did. Well, uh, Jeremy Kuhn, thank you so much for uh, being so generous with your time. And uh, thank you for uh, sharing the movie. I, I There are so many people I know who uh, are going to be very excited to even know that there's this documentary. And uh, as I said, it's available Tuesday, December 5th, which for a lot of people, that means it's already available uh, so disturbanceintheforce.com is uh, everywhere you need to go. Uh, I am Christian Blatt, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at ChristianDMZ. And uh, thanks again, and uh, thanks again to Jeremy Kuhn, and uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, everyone. See ya. How much fun was that conversation? And you really, really want to see this thing now, don't you? The documentary, right? A Disturbance in the Force? Or maybe you want to go... And actually sit through the Star Wars Holiday Special for yourself if you haven't seen it. Um, yeah, it's an experience. <laughs> it's mind-blowing that somebody thought that this thing was worth airing. That being said, they were the hot thing to do on network television back in the day before I was born. Uh, there's even like a, like a Batman and Robin Super Friends one that brings back... Adam West and Burt Ward in like the early eighties and they're clearly not into it. It also has like the rest of the justice league, but they did it as a variety show. It's painful. It's really bad. Uh, all that stuff is out there. If you can find it. Uh, I'm just glad that you found Geekscape. And like I said, in the intro, there's lots of cool Geekscape content coming. Uh, we have more episodes, so please continue to subscribe to Geekscape, continue to share it with your friends, leave us all those five-star reviews, and all that stuff that really helps us out. And uh, I think the next thing in the feed is uh, from our Big Brothers Big Sisters Geekscape Holiday Spectacular live stream. So stay subscribed, keep listening to that stuff, and uh, enjoy. We got a lot of cool episodes coming through the rest of 2023. Geekscape forever. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.